Sometimes when you're really, really wealthy and people are always telling you how great you are, you can't handle rejection and failure. And so the dating process can be really brutal because dating is a series of acceptances and rejections. And it's not easy for people, especially if you're not used to it. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you were aware of that. That's right, you were. It is a great day to be alive. Thanks for joining me here today to explore the connection between money and happiness and work and meaning. And today, in celebration of Valentine's Day week, we're going to explore the connection between love and money with my guest, Rachel Greenwald. Have you ever heard this expression, if you marry for money, you earn every penny? There's so many layers to that expression, and Rachel is a perfect person to help us explore this. She is a Harvard Business School-educated professional who has spent over two decades in professional matchmaking. She's written several books about the topic, and she has a business where she helps wealthy men find love. And I'll tell you more about Rachel in just a minute, but first, I have some housekeeping items. Hey, have you heard about this app called Clubhouse? Clubhouse, it's like a social media tool where you go in and you can listen and participate in themed conversations called rooms around any number of topics. My friend Al Bott and I are starting a room called Money and Meaning. We're going to do the second one this Thursday, February 11th at 10 a.m. Eastern time. So if you're on the Clubhouse, by all means, join up with me and Al to talk about money and meaning. This week, we're going to discuss what is the true meaning of success Hey, if you don't have an invitation, I've got a few to spare. Shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. I'll float you a little uh, invitation to Clubhouse. By the way, it's iOS, iPhone only for the time being. If you got an Android phone, can't help you out. Sorry, man. I want to say thank you to the good folks at Brookfield West Country Club in Roswell, Georgia last week. I was very excited to headline a socially distanced comedy show at their lovely facility It was a blast. Everybody had a great time. I don't know. Maybe I learned something about myself. My humor seems to resonate with balding dudes in uh, khakis and sweaters. I'm not sure what that says about me, but I had a lot of fun. Thank you for having me out. You should have comedy at your country club or social organization. And if you want to talk to me about doing that, shoot me a note. What's the email? I just told you. It's paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. I want to remind you that there is a Crazy Money Podcast listeners group on Facebook. I know you know, if you've been listening recently, you know, go to Facebook, search Crazy Money listeners, follow the links, I'll let you in. New members this week include Gordon Elliott, Lee Rivas, Sam Fleming, the man returned from the East, and Madge Bargista Penton. Madge, I don't know how to pronounce your maiden name, whatever that is, so I apologize if I didn't get it right. Anyway, hope to see you all there on the Facebook group. All right, let's talk about love and money. My guest this week is Rachel Greenwald. She's a professional matchmaker whose business serves wealthy men looking for love and the women, in most cases, that would be the uh, provider of that love, I suppose. That sounds more transactional than I meant it to sound, but you get what I'm saying. Rachel is a graduate of Harvard Business School, where she is an executive fellow. She's also the New York Times bestselling author of Several books, including Have Him at Hello and Find a Husband After 35. Never thought I'd be reading a book on an airplane called Find a Husband After 35, but I was, and I got a few weird looks from the flight attendants, and I was like, hey, don't judge, don't judge. You don't know what I'm into, while I was sitting next to my wife and two kids. In today's episode, we discuss the mistakes both men and women make when talking about or inquiring about money during courtship. She also divulges the number one mistake successful women make on first dates, as reported by over a thousand men that she interviewed for her book. Many of you are not going to like this insight, but it is worth considering because it runs counter to what many progressive people feel should be accepted standards for modern feminism. I'll leave you with that and have you listen to find out whether you agree with Rachel's insight. An expert on building successful relationships in both love and work. Rachel also helps corporate executives improve their professional relationships, deepen connections among their teams, and elevate their EQ, emotional quotient, skills by using tactics honed through her two decades of matchmaking. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Rachel Greenwald. Rachel Greenwald, welcome to Crazy Money. 
It's so great to be here, Paul. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. Rachel, how does a person find her way from Harvard Business School to the world of professional matchmaking? Well, a lot of people might think that the business of love is an oxymoron, but actually there is a really strong connection between love and business. So when I graduated from HBS in 1993, I did spend a couple years in corporate marketing And eventually I started having kids. And by the time I was pregnant with my third child, I just needed a more flexible job. And back then, which was in the late 90s, early 2000, I really struggled to figure out what I could do from home. And so I came up with this idea that the most flexible job in the world would be writing. I had no experience in writing, but I thought it's something I could pick up and put down anytime. So really, I got into the matchmaking business by writing a book about dating and really came about the topic of dating because a lot of my friends had told me that I was obsessed with their love lives, whether they were married or single. I realized it had been true since high school. I was much more interested in who was dating whom than what I was learning in math class. I went on Amazon and ordered a dozen books about how to become an author and get published and get an agent. And fast forward about a year and a half or two, I had a book that came out in 2003, which was called Find a Husband After 35, using what I learned at Harvard Business School. Anyway, from the book launch came a lot of requests to my website for help with dating. And that's how the book turned into more of a dating coach and matchmaker role. Now, the book is hundreds of pages long, so we can't go into every detail. But what are the most clear connections between what you learned at Harvard Business School and how someone procures a match later in life? Well, marketing is probably at the core. First impressions and marketing have a lot in common. So in the business world, you would clearly know that if you were, say, marketing a box of cereal or marketing a fancy car, how you package and describe the qualities of that item are really crucial to whether or not you make a sale and whether or not your business is profitable. And so if you translate some of those concepts into the dating world, first of all, first dates and first impressions are everything in terms of whether an early encounter leads to wanting a second encounter and eventually a relationship and then perhaps marriage. So one of the things you know, on a tactical basis that I talk a lot about to singles today that translates from the business world. I say that pre-impressions are the new first impressions. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that today when you meet someone on a first date, it's not the first time that you're actually meeting them. Today, you've Googled somebody before you actually show up to the date. And so how your online presence comes across is a marketing exercise. What do your photos look like on your social media profiles? How do you describe yourself in your LinkedIn bio? You know, do you sound arrogant or do you sound humble? You know, all of this online Googling and searching allows us to form an impression about somebody, a pre-impression before you even show up to the coffee date. That's a marketing exercise in its purest form. And that's what I learned at HBS. All right, we're going to get into some of the dating tactics and strategies a little bit further down the conversation, but let's talk about the industry you're in. How big is the personal matchmaking industry? Well, it's growing massively. Now, post-COVID, it is probably around $4 billion. Does that include the dating apps? Yes. So that is a description of the dating services industry, which includes both online dating sites and dating apps as well as personal matchmaking and dating coaching and even singles events like speed dating events, for example. So there's two components to the dating services market. There's the mass market, which is really the dating apps and sites. And then there's the niche market. So the niche market is the matchmakers and the private dating coaches. 
And that's a small component. It might be only 15%. You know, what a lot of people don't realize is that this is the wild west of the dating industry in the last few years. Maybe 10 years ago, there were only about 500 matchmakers. And now estimates are around 5,000 or more matchmakers. So the industry has just grown tenfold over the last decade. I wouldn't go to a physical trainer who had a worse body than I did. (laughs) Should a single client go to a matchmaker who's not in a committed relationship? I don't think marital status is really indicative of professional competence. I mean, think about the medical industry. You know, if you had cancer, would you only go to an oncologist who's had cancer himself or herself? You know, I think it's really more about their level of skill that they've developed. And that comes in different ways. A single matchmaker who's not married is in the trenches and very informed in her or his advice by what's happening every day in their life. Whereas a married matchmaker has a different set of experiences that are equally impactful because they know what a successful relationship looks like if they're happily married. I guess I should mention I've been married for 28 years. That's the answer I'm looking for. That's what I wanted to hear. (laughs) All right, let's talk about who your clients are. Who are these people that are hiring you and how much do they pay? Well, every matchmaker has a different business model. And so my business model is that I work with male clients only And I have female clients that can join a free Rolodex through my website so they don't pay any money. And I act like an executive recruiter for love. I help these clients who are usually millionaires and billionaires. They might be celebrities either in the entertainment industry or professional sports industries or just business tycoons. I help them curate the best candidates for the most important job role in their lives, namely their partner for life. They're private people. I don't advertise. I don't market. It's all word of mouth that I've built up over the years. Almost 100% of my clients are referrals from past clients. So the price really varies. You know, I don't share my own prices publicly, but I can tell you that in the industry, It's extremely expensive and it ranges from maybe a minimum of five to ten thousand dollars to upwards of several hundred thousand dollars. And usually it's a monthly retainer, just like executive recruiters, plus a success bonus. And you know, I can tell you a couple funny things about that financial calculation which has to do with not the status of the person or the wealth of the person, but men who are taller, you know, I hate this about the industry, but men who are taller, like six feet approximately are easier to match than men who are shorter. Yes. And yes, their looks is not as important as their height when you are in the matchmaking business. Okay. Well, that's going to get me to my next question about a variable. Why do billionaires need a matchmaker? Can't they just tweet, I'm rich and ready to mingle who's down? (laughs) Uh, That would be a pretty funny tweet. You know, billionaires, millionaires, they're people too, and they have the same vulnerabilities and the same insecurities as anybody else. And so there are some nuances though, to really, really wealthy people that I think are important to think about. One aspect is that really wealthy people are used to being able to buy the best. They are used to buying the best cars and the best vacations. And so when you have a history of that mindset and that approach to everything, and then you try to translate that into the dating world, it really doesn't work too well. It's almost a hindrance that someone has a ton of money when they're in the dating market because they become an optimizer. And they think that a more perfect match is one date away. And that can really cause harm to the process of falling in love and really evaluating what they need versus what they want. And a lot of really wealthy people will come to me with a long checklist of what they want. And it's usually a very superficial list. You know, it's not 
a list that I think correlates to happiness. I actually have a exercise that I do with clients. I first ask them in a written questionnaire what they're looking for in a mate. And that list yields all these superficial criteria. Like the men will say, I want someone who's beautiful and who's physically fit and athletic and maybe a particular religion or a particular body type or height or, you know, all these kind of things. And then weeks later, when we eventually set a time to talk on the phone and I say, you know, I want to get to know you better. Tell me about someone in your life who truly makes you happy when you're with them. Maybe it's a family member or a college roommate, anybody. And they start to come up with somebody, you know, they might say like, yeah, my college roommate, whenever I'm around him, he just lifts my mood and he always makes me laugh. So I say, well, tell me more about that. And they start to describe what it feels like to be around their college roommate. And they'll say things a lot deeper and more authentic about how that person really understands them and isn't judgmental and all these other wonderful, deeper qualities. So I pull out the list that they had sent me a couple of weeks earlier about what they're looking for in a mate. And then I compare that to the list they just told me about the person that makes them happy. And they're entirely different lists. And I explain to them that the gap between what they want and what they need is keeping them single. And that's true more than ever for <laughs> millionaires and billionaires who are used to trying to curate the best instead of really understanding what they need emotionally. Okay. So in one aspect, a billionaire or a very successful millionaire, a very successful millionaire, we have to qualify that a very successful millionaire relative to the billionaire. In one aspect, their history of getting what they want and optimizing other parts of their lives work against them. On the other hand, let's be honest, Rachel, women are attracted to men with money. And it's not just me saying that. Let me cite some science for you here. Sorry, is this mansplaining? I think I'm mansplaining, but nevertheless, a few years back, there's a study by the University of Wales studied the effect that luxury cars had on the attractiveness of women and men to the opposite sex. Researchers asked female participants to rate photos of different but equally attractive men who were seated respectively in either a Bentley Continental GT or a Ford Fiesta. It then asked men to rate the attractiveness of women who were likewise seated in one in a luxury car, one in a plane car. And the results found that women rated men in high-status cars significantly more attractive than the guy in the Ford Fiesta, and that men rated women strictly on looks and hardly noticed the cars at all. Thus led psychologists to come to two conclusions. Number one, women seek stability and security. And number two, men are pigs. So do the results of this study surprise you? And how do you see these dynamics playing out in your work? I love that study. And I recall that that was conducted on participants who were younger, like in their 20s and 30s. And that's really important because it really describes evolutionary psychology, right? You know, men are looking historically and biologically for healthy, fertile women who will bear high quality offspring for them. And women are physically weaker, you know, biologically than men when it comes to acquiring resources and food. So women are dependent on men to provide for them and their children. So I think evolutionary description is really something that we're hardwired to look for. It's not that men are pigs but that we are fighting our own biology. There's another study that was done at Rice University, sort of a similar take on that whale study. And women were revealing that when they went for the men in the you know, fancy car, that it was not necessarily for a long-term relationship, that they chose differently when they were looking to mate. So I think there are stereotypes that everyone recognizes in you know Hollywood and maybe even in their own lives that men are looking for beauty and women are looking for money. But you have to unpack what beauty and money are really proxies for. And it's not all bad. It's individual, of course. But when women are evaluating wealth, 
there are a lot of factors they're considering. Number one, they might be very nurturing women who want to raise children and stay home with them, which is their choice. And so they're consciously or subconsciously evaluating whether the man can earn enough money to support the whole family so she can stay home and be with the kids. You know, that might be one of many scenarios. And when men are looking at beautiful women, they could have a range of emotions. They could be insecure about their own value and and have low self-esteem and maybe thinking that a beautiful woman at their side would validate them. There could be a very different effect where the man is looking at health and fitness and seeing signs of beauty as someone who's going to take care of themselves and be a partner for him and his children for the rest of their lives. So there are more generous interpretations to those scenarios that I like to think about. But in life, there are superficial people and there are deep quality people. And the process of dating is trying to figure out which is which, right? So I'm not ogling. Ogling? Is it ogling or ogling? I'm not ogling. I'm just trying to optimize my genetic vibrancy for future generations. If you're in the mindset of looking for a serious relationship, I mean, of course, there are lots of men who just want to take hot women home for sex and (laughs) they're not looking for a relationship. But I think if a man is marriage-minded at that point in his life, that there are less times that choosing the more attractive mate is occurring. You know, I think the other expression I hear a lot is that men choose a woman that they can take home to their mothers. I think that that is more true when men are in the process of looking to settle down, that they are wanting somebody who their mother, you know, and by mother, I put air quotes around that because it's really their whole family will embrace and see as a quality addition to the larger family, not just becoming a couple, but becoming part of a new family. How do you filter for that? If your clients are very successful men, how do you filter out the women that are in it for the money? Two parts to your question. First of all, I don't work with everyone who writes to me on my website. I probably only work with about 10 or 20% of the people who reach out to me. The men or the women or both? I don't work with women as matchmaking clients. But they're in your database. They're in my database. Right, right. So I was just going to answer the client part of it first, and then I'll talk about the women. So from the male perspective, I want to make sure that I'm working with good guys so I can adequately represent that there would be a good partner. So I screen the men out and only take about 10 or 20% of those who reach out to me. And then on the other side of the equation, the women, you know, it's almost impossible for me as a matchmaker to understand what's in their heart. I don't know thousands of women really well, you know, that would be impossible. And so what I try to do is I have long conversations with people. I have long questionnaires that they fill out and I try to get a sense of them. But the reality is a matchmaker as an executive recruiter, I'm putting two people together so that they can get to know each other. And I trust that they're mature adults who have good emotional intelligence and that over time, they'll be able to get to know each other and screen whether this is the right partner. You know, it would be impossible for a matchmaker to know whether someone is really a gold digger, for example, or to know whether in a crisis, somebody would show up and be there for their partner because I'm a third party. I am not there in the relationship with those two people. I am merely introducing them. And I do it, I hope smartly, and I hope I do it with great empathy or insight. Sometimes I have disastrous dates for sure. People have become very angry at terrible dates I've set them up on. (laughs) Um, But I also have really, you know, lovely stories and people who come back to me and say that they never would have found this person without my help. So like any job, you have good days and bad days and successes and failures. I'm human. The matchmaking business is human. One thing that I think people don't realize, especially in the, you know, rarefied 1% that the matchmaking business caters to is that 
matchmaking is not like ordering off a menu at a restaurant, you know, like all those things, people think that if they just pay enough, they can get exactly what they want. And that's not how the human love business works at all. You know, if a man comes to me and says, I don't want a gold digger. Well, okay, great. You know, I can definitely introduce him to some women that I think are very down to earth. And, you know, there are proxies for that. Like maybe they work in a nonprofit industry or they're a kindergarten teacher or they're a nurse. Professions that traditionally attract more genuine down to earth people by stereotype. But on an individual level, I can't promise that they're not after his money. You know, that's something he's going to have to get to know on his own over time. So you talk about this specifically, and I'm glad you used the term gold digger so I didn't have to say it. You speak about this specifically in your book, Have Him at Hello, Confessions from a Thousand Guys about what makes them fall in love or never call back. You talk about the gold digger problem as manifest in a character you call the Park Avenue princess. And this applies not just to billionaires and millionaires, but to everybody who's out there trying to date. You know, we want to make sure that we're finding a person that is somewhat close to our own values, including financial values. How does an individual come across like a Park Avenue princess on a first or second date? Well, as you mentioned, I interviewed a thousand single men and asked them why they didn't want a second date. And the Park Avenue princess was the fourth most popular reason that men gave. It basically described someone who was high maintenance or looking to marry a lifestyle instead of a person. There are a lot of different ways it came across. I mean, the old adage that a man is taller or more attractive when he stands on top of his wallet, you know, something like that. It's definitely out there in the dating world. And these wealthy clients are really looking to matchmakers to screen out those desires. But what women don't understand, and this is what I learned from all these interviews, is that they are not being subtle because women think they're being very clever <laughs> to disguise their gold digging tendencies. But in fact, one of the categories I describe in that category of the Park Avenue princess is something called the money detective. And the money detective is where women have these proxy questions to try to figure out how much money their date has. If the guy's an entrepreneur, you know, how is she supposed to figure out if this guy is broke and working out of his basement and, <laughs> right, you know, right. is never going to go anywhere? So she'll say something like, oh, you know, do you have stock options? And she tries to ask these proxy questions. And maybe they're talking about a trip that he went on and, she might interrupt and say, oh, you know, when you were in Bali, like, where did you stay? What hotel? And if he says, you know, he stayed in a youth hostel, that's a big demerit against him. But if he stayed at the Four Seasons, you know, suddenly her posture straightens a little bit more and she perks up like, this could be good. <laughs> so if you want to know if he has stock options, go ahead and say, well, are they ISOs or non-quals? What's the vesting schedule? And what's your strike price? <laughs> Go ahead and get it all out, okay? <laughs> How many of those have already vested? What are we looking at here? What happens after year four or five, depending upon the greediness of the company you work for, et cetera? <laughs> well, you know, the problem is that there's no amount of questions or no correct questions that are accurately going to be able to gauge a man's financial situation during a first date. That's just the reality, you know? So you have to stop asking those questions that you think are so subtle, but he knows exactly what you're getting at and really just try to <laughs> lean into who he is. Because, I mean, think about it, like a guy who is driving a Prius on a first date versus a guy who's driving a Tesla, it could mean anything. You know, the Prius could be a deliberate attempt to hide his wealth. I interviewed a guy who said that was his litmus test. He had, you know, a garage full of antique and expensive cars, but he would drive a Prius on the first date to deliberately fend off the gold diggers and find out if she really liked him for who he is. I mean, that's what millionaires and billionaires really want at their heart is to be loved for who they are. So he would deliberately drive the Prius as a screener. Now, the guy who's driving a Tesla, on the other hand, doesn't necessarily mean the Tesla's his. He could have borrowed it from a friend. You know, there's right. so many variables that could be happening that you just don't know either way. So 
the only thing you do know is that you're going to turn them off with your not subtle questions. So I always quiz people with this very simple question. What is the goal of a first date? To find out if you want a second date. No, not exactly. Not to find out if you want a second date, but to get the second date. Now, wait a minute. No, 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 no. Sorry, I'm going to listen. I'm going to listen. See, I'm practicing my, I'm going to practice my first date skills and try to listen. I love that you're learning as we go. The reason I say that is first dates are like the first pancake. You know, have you ever made pancakes? The first pancake is always a throwaway. You know, it's not going to be very good. The griddle isn't hot enough. The batter's not going to be the right consistency yet. And so is true in dating where the first date is never accurate. If it's a great first date or a terrible first date, it's just not accurate. There are so many things going on in that first date that make it unreliable. And so all you want to do is get past it and get to the second and third dates where you can really assess if you want to continue to get to know this person. So when I go and do comedy at a new club, my goal is to be invited back. I'll use that as an equivalent to what you're trying to say there. I love that. Yeah, it's to do a good enough job to where they don't hate me, basically, and that they're willing to entertain me for a second show or second booking. But let's talk about something I know some people will find controversial, but it's an interesting issue. The number one reason why in your book, Have Met Hello, the number one reason from feedback from a thousand guys on why they don't want to call a date back after a first date is what you call dominant behavior from the woman. So in this age, the fourth wave of feminism in 2021, are you telling powerful professional women to try to be somebody else on a first date? I'm not. And I love that you asked that because it's really a common misperception and also a common defense mechanism. So let me explain, which is that a lot of what the guys were saying was that they were really impressed by the woman. They admired her intelligence and her accomplishments, but in the end, they felt like it was maybe more like a business dinner that they'd rather hire her than date her. And so I tried to unpack that. You know, my interviews with each of these thousand guys was on average 48 minutes long, so almost an hour. And during these conversations, I really tried to get at what was underneath what they were saying. And so women believe that when guys say things like that, you know, like they don't want the woman who's boss lady, women believe that men are intimidated by their success. But when I unpacked those responses from the men, what they were really saying is that women who came across with this dominant behavior were argumentative or controlling, or they weren't nurturing. And women felt like, well, what are you talking about? Like, I'm modern and confident and forthright and successful, and those are all good things. And if he doesn't like me for who I am, then he's not right for me. But in fact, that wasn't what was going on. It was sort of a defense mechanism. And a lot of times guys would say, I want someone who can speak their mind and who's really sharp and a lot of these great qualities that successful women have today. But when I come home at night from my busy and stressful job, I want a place to land that feels supportive. You know, So I want to debate with my wife. I don't want to always argue with my wife. And there was a subtle difference. So it came down to him saying that he wanted her to have her own mind, but still be on her side. And a lot of that just really had to do with presentation of how she positioned things. So for example, a woman who might say that she disagrees with something her husband said, there are different ways to say that, right? It comes down to being diplomatic and being graceful and so instead of saying, you're totally wrong, the woman could be softer about it and more supportive and say, you know, have you considered that what you're saying may not be right? You know, let's think this through together. <laughs> now, who would you rather be married to? Would That's you rather right. be married right. to the woman who had a gentler approach to challenging you or a more combative, you know, almost disrespectful approach to challenging you? You know, I don't know if you're familiar with John Gottman's work at the Gottman Institute. I am not. Well, 
Okay, Paul, you have got to immediately follow and read everything that the Gottmans put out because they are so wise in how... I just looked him up. He looks like the captain from Captain and Tennille. <laughs> okay, well, don't get too focused on his looks because what he's saying underneath is so powerful and it really goes back to this boss lady dominant quality that men reacted against and how women don't really understand what it's about underneath. They have this knee-jerk reaction that it's insulting. But really what John Gottman and his wife did over many years is they created a love lab and they studied thousands of couples to figure out which relationships were going to succeed and which would fail. I love their research. They divided the successes and the failures into two groups that they called the masters and the disasters. And they tried to look for patterns about why couples stayed together or divorced. And it really came down to something very simple, which is whether or not a partner would accommodate a bid. A bid is something they call like a request for connection. And so as an example, like say a really simple example, like the wife is sitting on the couch reading a book and the husband is in the room and he looks out the window and he says, oh, wow, look at that really unusual bird. So what John Gottman says is that the husband is making a bid from his wife. He's making a request for connection and whether or not she turns toward him or turns away from him is really at the core of their relationship dynamic. So she could either say, I'm reading, you know, don't interrupt me, which is turning away from his bid. Or she could say, oh, really? What's so unique about the bird? Tell me more. Or, and that's where she's turning toward him. And so that spirit of sort of kindness and generosity to connect with your partner is what makes relationships healthy. And so when women go on first dates and they're successful in their careers, they often come in with these preconceived attitudes that men are going to be intimidated by my success. So I'm going to sit down at the dinner table and find out if he's that kind of jerk. And so throughout the date, you know, she's asking interrogative questions or she's acting defensive about things he's saying that may just be innocuous and she's interpreting them through the wrong lens. So I really try to encourage women to think about their behaviors as being softer. And are you familiar with this business term called MRI, most respectful interpretation? I am not. You're stumping me today. <laughs> well, maybe you've just been in comedy clubs too long, but in the business world, MRI is a really popular concept at work. And it's basically <clears throat> just very simple, which is what is the most generous interpretation you can think of for what somebody says? And instead of jumping to the conclusion that it's coming from a bad place, that they're insecure or they're arrogant or whatever the interpretation is, reframe it in your mind and say, MRI, what is the most respectful interpretation I can muster? And then respond from that space. So those are the behaviors that I try to coach, especially successful women to exhibit during the date to find out if he's a good guy or not. You know, a lot of these missteps in first dates are not based in reality. You know, it's not that he's intimidated by her success, but rather she exhibits kind of obnoxious defensive behavior, worried that he's intimidated by her success. And then it becomes a vicious cycle. When the real issue is that the griddle just isn't the right temperature. <laughs> Not yet, but it, dating is about weeding out the wrong people. And so that bad pancake could turn out to just be bad batter, not the bad first pancake. And that's what you have to find out in the evolving stages of dating. But all I'm trying to explain is that it's just not accurate on the first date. People are nervous. They come in with all sorts of history of bad dates that they've had previously. And a lot of people are divorced and getting back into the dating world. And they're nervous and worried about getting into another bad relationship. So they walk into that first dinner and they are looking to weed out instead of rule in. And it's just a different mindset that doesn't yield 
accurate dating selection criteria. Let's say that both parties are in it for for all the right reasons that they're both looking for a long-term partner. How soon in a relationship should a respectful discussion of money come up? Well, that is such a nuanced question. In one way, you're asking about a timeline, but in another way, you're actually asking whether a discussion about financial attitudes is predictive of future behavior together as a couple. So, (laughs) you know, from speaking from personal experience, I have a funny story where on our very first date, my husband came to pick my, you know, my then first date, but eventually husband came to pick me up. And when he arrived, I said, you know, do you want something to drink before we head out to dinner? And he said, sure. And I said, you know, just look in the refrigerator, whatever you find. And he saw a bottle of fresh squeezed orange juice. And he attributed all sorts of incorrect things to that fresh squeezed bottle of orange juice. You know, he knew that fresh squeezed was more expensive than your regular Minute Maid concentrate orange juice. And he started worrying that I had all sorts of high maintenance tendencies and that, you know, he was a business school student at the time and didn't have any money then. He had most recently worked as a volunteer at Oxfam, (laughs) helping feed the poorest people in the world and didn't get a salary for it. So we were at very different stages when we met. I had been working for several years at the time and So that bottle of orange juice became this kind of dangerous symbol where we had very different current attitudes about money. And had we talked about our attitudes towards money at any point, probably in the first, I don't know, year or two of dating, we may not be married today because predicting how you're going to feel about money at all sorts of future stages of your life is so unreliable and probably inaccurate. But when do you even divulge where you are financially? If you're deep in hock or if you're rolling in it, when do you show your cards? Well, I would say certainly not in the first couple of dates because you want to be able to have trust and curiosity in your partner when you have that conversation. And the first couple of dates are much more skeptical and judgmental by nature because you're trying to figure out if this person is worth investing more time in. And so by the time you have a financial discussion, you know, you want to be able to have a depth where somebody isn't going to just make assumptions. They're going to ask questions first. So if your situation is that you're really in debt, you don't want to divulge that at an early stage where somebody is just likely to say, that must be hard and, you know, pass the potatoes, you know, and kind of get off the discussion because they're not sure how personal or how intimate to get into that topic. But, you know, maybe several months, like three to six months down the road, depending how much time you spend together, it it could be accelerated if you see each other every day. But at that point, if someone says I'm in debt, your partner would hopefully respond with curiosity, like, really, how did that happen? And how do you feel about that? You know, do you have plans to get out of debt, you know, and to basically hear things like, what were your family attitudes about money growing up? You know, there are just all sorts of ways that partners respond that is so much more informative and predictive about future success in the relationship the longer you wait to have those discussions. So it's okay to sleep with somebody before I tell her I owe the government a million dollars in student loans. <laughs> that is a very intriguing question. Um, and I'm really not doing it to make sport of it. I know a young couple and they're both very successful. One is a doctor, but he came out of school. Like I think he did a residency and he's a surgeon and all this. And he has like a half a million dollars worth of student debt. When do you bring that up in a relationship with somebody that you're serious about? Well, similar to my advice on having the financial talk, I would also echo the same advice on becoming intimate sexually. You know, I know that a lot of couples have sex extremely early on today. You know, of course I know that. A lot of couples have sex on the first date. 
And I just don't think that is a smart decision if you are looking for a long-term committed relationship, because I think your level of physical intimacy should mirror your level of emotional intimacy. So if, for example, the sex is bad on the first date, you <laughs> might not want a second date, right? Don't make me make a batter joke. Please don't make me do that. <laughs> but if the sex is bad after, you know, you have sex for the first time and you've known someone for a couple of months, you're probably going to react differently. You're probably going to talk about how to make it better instead of just assuming that this is a lost cause. And I think a lot of really beautiful relationships come out of those deeper conversations and connection that are just not possible so early on, whether it's physical or whether it's a intellectual or personal topic like money. We could talk about all these things for hours because there's many different topics that are woven into the overall topic of dating and relationships and money. But tell me, why is a matchmaker an executive fellow at Harvard Business School? I am in this new program at Harvard Business School called Executive Fellows. And this is the first year the school is doing it where they've invited about 20 of us who are practitioners in various industries to come in and assist the academic faculty with helping MBA students get a more balanced view of what day-to-day -day business and professional success looks like. I'm bringing in a framework that I developed called the 13 conversation stereotypes. These are conversation bad behaviors that I gleaned from my research with the thousand single men. There are categories like the one-upper or the humble bragger or the mirror. I even have a stereotype called the comedian, which you might like given your comedy oh, background. Great. Terrific. I can tell you more about it, but basically these conversation types are ways that people speak in business and also in dating that disconnect people that they're speaking to from the conversation and from developing a relationship with them. So whether it's in dating or in business, there are true ways that you can, actionable ways that you can create deeper and more authentic connections. I'll tell you the comedian, for example, is this type of conversationalist who is funny with his jokes. He might be sarcastic and have a quick wit. He might be self-deprecating. And at first, that's so much fun to talk to somebody who's the comedian. But soon you might crave a deeper connection with that person. And his humor might be a shield that you can't penetrate. And that might be frustrating. So if you're talking to the comedian, you might feel at a distance from him. And, you know, like crashing after a sugar high, you might feel tired or empty or unsatisfied afterwards. And so I try to point out these stereotypes to people and see which one might resonate with their own style to help them create better relationships in their jobs, you know, with clients or investors or coworkers. And so that's one way that, you know, being an executive fellow at HBS and bringing in this practical research from the dating world is hopefully helping MBA students navigate their careers more successfully. I find myself triggered by your assessment of my communication skills. I'm sorry. I wasn't speaking to you personally, but sure you weren't. Sure you weren't, Rachel. Does that resonate at all with you? I think it resonates with a younger me for sure, but not the wizened, silver-backed and bald-headed person you're speaking to today. You know, I have to tell you, I listened to your episode on your podcast with your wife, where the uh -oh. two of you were talking about money in your marriage. And at one point, your wife said, it's a good thing you're funny. <laughs> and I burst out laughing when I heard her say that because- Really what she was saying is that your sense of humor softens a lot of the areas where we disagree and it's okay to feel differently about money in our marriage because at the end of the day, you're supportive of me and what I want to do with our money and you make me laugh. And so ultimately, I think she was saying it's not about money. It's about the connection that we have. And part of that is your sense of humor 
as you were having that conversation with her, you were reacting to the things she said with curiosity. And maybe that's why you're, you know, doing a podcast because you're good at it. You're asking questions. You're more interested than trying to be interesting. And that is at the heart of good communication and good relationships. And it doesn't matter whether it's about money or sex or careers or where we're going on vacation. It's really about this kindness and spirit of generosity going back to John Gottman's research. The captain would never steer us wrong on how to relate with our spouses. What you just said about his opening comment, that's something that I think all of us can do better at in a relationship. When your partner is offering you an opportunity to engage, I can see opportunities for me to do better there all the time. But what are some examples of stories from your business, from your matchmaking that we might be able to learn from? I have so many client stories of millionaires and billionaires who have struggle to find the right person because they mistakenly interpreted the process of searching to be something other than a search for happiness. They were searching for perfection. There was a guy who was actually short and he had a lifelong insecurity about his height. And so he was very, very wealthy, hundreds of millions of dollars as his net worth. That's a good start. Yeah, it's a good start, but he didn't get a lot of second dates. And one of the reasons was that because he was insecure about his height, and you know, this is something I unpacked later through exit interviews with his former dates, he would lead with talk of how rich he was. And so he would go on a date and he would say things like, you know, I just got back from a co-op meeting at my building and we were trying to decide how much to tip the doorman at Christmas this year. And, you know, of course I decided to give 10X what everyone else in the building did. I want my doorman to know how generous I am. And it was just like this little anecdote that he would share on a date, but it was such a turnoff to the women. You know, he thought he was signaling that he was very successful and very generous, but the women just felt like it was gross and that he was trying to impress them with his money. And he wasn't even aware of these stories. So I sent him on a mock date. You know, I have women that I hire to simulate a first date to find out what they're doing wrong and why, you know, what's blocking them from finding the right match. And The woman who did the mock date came back and told me all these stories that he told. He made a big show of ordering the most expensive wine on the menu. And anyway, he was leading with his money and not leading with who he was as a person and what he cared about in life. And once I pointed that out to him, he completely approached his dates differently and was able to find such a genuine, authentic connection with someone that he ultimately married. Were his feelings hurt when you told him about the mistake he was making? You know, in that case, they were not. He is a businessman and he appreciates market feedback. (laughs) It was a blind spot. He didn't know that he was doing it. And even if those stories sounded accurate, you know, he remembered saying those things. He had a completely different interpretation of what the story was intended to mean versus how it landed with the date. Very interesting. There's another story I would share with you about a client who was a billionaire and he had a very fragile ego and didn't know how to deal with rejection because he had surrounded himself with sycophants. And because he was so wealthy, he valued having people around him that he could pay And they always told him great things about himself, that he was the best and he was the smartest. And that happened his whole life, even in childhood and certainly in business as an adult. And so after the second date that I set him up on, he really liked this woman and couldn't wait to see her again. And she didn't want another date. And when I explained to him why there were numerous reasons. He couldn't handle the rejection. And so he just vanished. He had paid me a ton of money up front. And after the second date vanished and went back to an old girlfriend. And I repeatedly tried to reach out to him to find out what happened, to figure out how to move forward. And he didn't even care. He was just like, 
keep the money. I don't want to do this anymore. And he went back to someone who just built up his ego. And so sometimes when you're really, really wealthy and people are always telling you how great you are, you can't handle rejection and failure. And so the dating process can be really brutal because dating is a series of acceptances and rejections. And it's not easy for people, especially if you're not used to it. Yeah, that is really interesting, especially since the people that get to that level really are used to getting their way and having people tell them they're great and feeling as if they deserve it. So that's got to be a big mind bender. Yeah, absolutely. That feeling of deserving it is really key that you pointed out because when you have so much money, like these billionaires have, you know, in some cases worked very hard for it and therefore deserve their success and everything that money can buy with that success that emotional progression doesn't always translate in the dating world. In the dating world, it's more about earning what you create together and earning trust and earning respect. You don't just get it right away because you're rich and you think you deserve it. On some level, that makes me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) Does that make me a shallow person? No, I love that it makes you feel better. It's, you know, hey, at least I'm tall. I'm six two. I feel better. <laughs> oh, you're ahead of the game. I don't need to stand on my wallet. <laughs> so I have a really interesting story from a couple of years ago I could share with you about a client who came to me with a broken heart. He had been engaged and his mother had basically torpedoed his relationship because his mother didn't like his fiance and he Uh was devastated. He really respected his mother and the rest of his family didn't like her either. And so ultimately they broke up. And so he came to me to hire me as a matchmaker and told me the story. And I asked him all about why the family didn't like the fiance And as he told me more about it, I really felt like the family had misunderstood the fiance and that the reasons weren't really valid. And so instead of having him hire me to set him up on new dates and find a new relationship, I decided to do an intervention with him and his family and moderate a discussion about their perceptions of his fiance and give him a chance to explain why she might have come across in a certain way that wasn't accurate about who she was. And in the end, the family gave her another chance. He went on to marry her and they've been married for several years and have kids now. And so profit in that sense was not in the same definition that most businesses have. I didn't take any money from him, but I felt like I did the right thing. That's something you really have to wrap your head around in the matchmaking business because it is really not like any other business I've ever come across. I think that when somebody hires a professional in the love business, whoever that person is, They have to really ask questions first about whether that matchmaker is operating from a heart-centered place or a profit motive, because you really want to try to find somebody who's in the former. Or you could just start a new business, matchmaking with new parents, new family. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Get that guy a new mom and new brothers and sisters. He sounds like his... (laughs) (laughs) Think of the margins you could get if you could get people adopted by loving billionaire parents. That's a new business idea for you. That is a creative industry. I would put money behind that. You know, let me know how that goes. We are out of time, Rachel. Even if we're not single, where can our audience find out more about you and the kinds of work that you do for many different constituencies? You know, everything's on my website, rachelgreenwald.com. And, you know, I have all the social media stuff on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. You know, I've been doing a lot of writing lately. I just wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review about a matchmaker's advice can improve your first impressions at work. So reading articles is a great way to learn about some of this research as well. Cool. I will put a link to the Harvard Business Review article and to your website in our show notes. Rachel Greenwald, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Happy Valentine's Day. Thanks, Paul. Happy Valentine's Day to you too.
Wow, what an interesting way to make a living. Thank you, Rachel, for sharing your insights into the intersection of love and money with us today. As I mentioned, links to Rachel's website and book are in the show notes. Scroll down, click in there, and uh, find out more. Here are my takeaways. Takeaway number one, folks, stay married. Do that, because dating is hard and Rachel is expensive. Rachel is expensive. What about divorce lawyers? The whole proposition is expensive. As they say, it's cheaper to keep her. That's such a, I, I'm sorry, it's glib, I know. Hey, but for real, look for those cues, the openings that Rachel discussed in your marriage where your partner, your spouse, your colleague, your roommate, whatever you call him or her, that they open up the discussion to say, hey, I've got something that's important to me and I'd like you to listen and recognize that. Stay married. Keep them feeling valued and stay married. Number two, Prince Avenue princesses and princes get what they deserve. As I said in the opening, if you marry for money, you earn every penny. I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, folks, money won't solve your problems. And if you think somebody else's money will solve them, you're totally wrong. So know that along with someone else's money comes all their weirdness and their problems. So uh, keep your expectations in check and beware. Number three, Trust around finances and marriage is tricky and the work is never done. Even if you've been married for 20 years, you got to keep talking about money because as your life situation evolves, so evolve your priorities, so evolve your needs and your wants, and you will never stop changing. The organism that is your marriage will never stop changing. Keep talking, keep an open mind, and know that it's supposed to be hard because it is. Is that logically sound? I don't know. Anyway, folks, so happy you joined us today. Later on this week, I'm going to release, re-release the conversation I had with my wife, Stacy, about 18 months ago, early in the podcast. People tell me it is right up there in their top two or three favorites of these episodes. So if you want to feel better about yourself, listen to my craziness that I can't conceal in a very candid conversation with my wife about how we talk about money. Thanks again for joining. If you have a minute, please rate and review this show. By all means, subscribe. And in the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.